KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the hour, we'll talk about politics and pleasure. For that, we'll turn to Rebecca Solnit. She's probably best known as the author of Men Explain Things to Me. Now she's got a new book out. It's called Orwell's Roses. In high school, we all learned that George Orwell warned against the dangers of totalitarianism in the novels Animal Farm and 1984. And then later we discovered Homage to Catalonia, his thrilling memoir about fighting fascism in the Spanish Civil War and then fighting Stalinism as a leftist. But her new book about him begins, In the spring of 1936, a writer planted roses. Also later in the show, your Minnesota Moment, news from my hometown of St. Paul, where the city attorney has announced he's not going to prosecute any cases involving traffic stops for broken taillights. He says he hasn't been able to forget about Philando Castile. But first, today's political update with Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of the American Prospect and a contributor to the LA Times op-ed page. Hi, Harold. Hi, John. Good to be here. Well, the House was supposed to begin debating the Build Back Better bill Wednesday, uh, but instead they voted on a resolution to censure Republican Paul Gosar and strip him of his committee assignments. Remind us what the gentleman from Arizona did that got him in trouble. The the gentleman from Arizona posted a uh, tweet. I think it was a tweet, not a Facebook thing. Yes. Posted a tweet that showed in cartoon version uh, his, uh, a la a, a popular video game, uh, uh, killing uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and waving a sword at, uh, at Joe Biden. Uh, this is, you know, and I don't really think the Democrats would necessarily be going after him if the House Republican leaders had uh, given any indication that they found this troubling. But of course they didn't. Uh, Lord knows they don't want to offend the uh, more, most rabid Trumpians out there. So the Democrats are, uh, you know, have voted or are voting as we, we speak. We're recording on Wednesday. Yes. Uh, uh, to censure uh, Mr. Gosar and uh, take him off all committee assignments. I should point out that Gosar's family, all of his brothers and sisters, have long been saying the guy is actually not all there mentally, that he's oh. got some weird. Uh, uh, psychological disturbances and should not be holding public office. So in a sense, the House Democrats are simply coming back, uh, coming down on the side of the people who know Paul Gosar best. So meanwhile, the Build Back Better bill is awaiting the CBO analysis, which we believe we're going to get by the end of the day on Friday. If The Congressional Budget Office says the bill will be more expensive than the White House says. What happens then? Do we go back to the drawing boards? We don't, because uh, the uh, five moderate so-called Democrats, and I guess so-called can can modify either moderate or Democrats, (laughs) uh, pledged uh, in, in order to get the Progressive Caucus to come along that they would basically support the bill though they wanted to see the CBO score. Now, on Wednesday, the leader of that group, uh, uh, Congressman Gottheimer and another member of those five moderates, uh, Congressman Schrader of Oregon, uh, 
said that they understood the preliminary indication from the CBO doubted that the money that uh, was in the bill that uh, the White House said would be there uh, as a result of increased IRS going after wealthy tax evaders. Uh, The CBO estimated less money than the White House, but uh, Gottheimer and Schrader and the moderates said that that was okay. They thought the White House might be a little better on this and they were going to vote for the bill. So at this point, its passage uh, probably on Friday is effectively assured in the House. And as my uh, partner in crime at the American Prospect, Bob Kuttner, noted in his Wednesday blog post, all praise to uh, the Progressive Caucus and Pramila Jayapal, its leader, for basically saying uh, we're only on board if the holdout moderates uh, are okay with the with the bill, and that provoked the holdout moderates to make their statements, which they followed up on Wednesday, and uh, therefore the bill will very, very likely pass at some point uh, on Friday. And then it goes to the Senate, uh, where Chuck Schumer uh, says that he hopes the Senate can complete debate and vote before Christmas. Joe Manchin says he's not ready to vote, which of course is not the same as saying he's going to vote no. What does it mean? Well, two things. First of all, uh, I think in the last few minutes before our actually having this discussion, Manchin said he was okay with Schumer's schedule. So, uh, you know, the imponderable is what Manchin wants to take out of the bill ostensibly due to his fears about inflation. And we have two uh, rival centrist columns on this. We have Larry Summers, uh, former Obama Treasury Secretary, writing in the Washington Post on Tuesday that, yeah, inflation is real, but the Build Back Better bill will do nothing to uh, uh, cause inflation to rise and in fact, obviously, some of its provisions about making childcare affordable, about universal pre-K, about reducing what seniors have to pay out of pocket for drugs, uh, will make the cost of living for many Americans actually lower. That's on the one hand. On the other hand, uh, a, um, uh, a capitalist uh, tool uh, and nominal Democrat, Stephen Ratner, had an op-ed in the New York Times on Wednesday saying, well, inflation's a real problem. And are they sure about the Build Back Better bill? And I'm, you know, one's fear has to be that Manchin will look at the Ratner column and say, aha, something's got to be cut even more. So we need to watch that. Of course, the House has, at Nancy Pelosi's commendable insistence, inserted a provision, provision on paid sick leave, which Biden said he doesn't support. So it may be that that's what will, uh, uh-huh. you know, fall prey to the Biden, uh, to the Mansion acts. Whether anything else will uh, remains to be seen. Now he did supposedly pledge to uh, President Biden that he was okay with the bottom line of 1.75 trillion. So we'll see if a that was a you know pledge to be taken seriously. And even so, uh, if he thinks that there need to be, uh, needs to be some cuts made uh, just to get to $1.75 trillion. Meanwhile, some of our friends are complaining that the second biggest program in the tax reform part of the Build Back Better bill 
gives billions to the rich by raising the state and local tax deduction cap. This is kind of a fairly obscure part of the taxes, unless you are a rich person in the states of California, New York, Illinois, and so on, where they have high uh, state income taxes. We are told this change would primarily benefit the top 10% of income earners, most of whom, or many of whom live in blue states. Yes, well, the uh, uh, person leading the charge on this actually is the aforementioned moderate, uh, Josh Gottheimer. Uh, this has been embraced by some of the suburban Democrats around New York City, not any of the Democrats, to my knowledge, around San Francisco or L.A., where the cost of living is high. So it, it doesn't simply come from Democrats in districts where uh, people would rich people would benefit from this. It comes from specifically centrist Democrats from districts where people yes. would benefit from <clears> this. <throat> and there really aren't any centrist Democrats from the Bay Area or uh, L.A. Uh, there are uh, in the suburbs of, of New York and a few and a few other places. Oddly enough, there are a lot of Democrats who don't want this to happen. And it's a question of whether they can hold the line uh, uh, and, and try to knock this out. Uh, what's odd about it is the Democrats who don't want this to happen include both Bernie Sanders and Joe Manchin, which is an unusual coalition. It is. Uh, I guess there are no high property values or very few in West Virginia. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, this, this runs uh, afoul of uh, Bernie's worldview that uh, we should not be helping people who are already plutocratic. Uh, but that's what's there, and that's there at the insistence of center to center right Democrats in high tax states. Of course, there's other uh, big news in the last week on the tax front, the global tax front. Joe Biden went to meet with the leaders of the world and got them all uh, to agree, or virtually all, in setting a global minimum tax on cor corporate profits of 15%. And this it's bad news for uh, Ireland, for Luxembourg, for the Cayman Islands. Uh, uh, now will, will uh, Medtronic pull out of Ireland and move back to Minneapolis? Will Apple leave Ireland and come back to Cupertino? One can only hope. Actually, Apple had a bounce shot that first funneled their profits through the Netherlands en route to Ireland. So it was, it's even more complicated than that. But, you know, most nations actually lose revenue as uh, a function of this. And even when they don't, they, they're, they're somewhat subject to ongoing pressure for uh, that if they want, you know, uh, global capital to invest in them, they need to ratchet their tax downward to meet the levels of Ireland and Luxembourg, etc., so uh, once the U.S. supported this, this was key because most global corporations, more of them are, are American than that of any other nation. Once the U.S. Uh, said we're OK with this, and that was a function of the change of administration to Biden and of the very active uh, persuasive effort from Secretary of Tre the Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, the company said, sure, you've given us uh, not just a push on this, you've given us a shield. So if our multinationals complain, we can say, look, if it's okay in America, it's gotta be okay here. So that, that made a big difference. 
then Biden went on to the World Climate Conference in Glasgow. We've read a lot about it. They, of course, are tackling the problem of the temperature going up on planet Earth. How did that work out? Not so well. Uh, and here, I think part of the problem was what America did and was able to do with the global minimum tax, it couldn't do and didn't do uh, with, uh, with the climate. Um, for one thing, uh, Joe Biden wanted to come into that conference with a real uh, American statement against uh, fossil fuels. But uh, the part of the uh, Build Back Better bill that would uh, essentially penalize utilities for continuing to use fossil fuels was stripped out at the insistence of Joe Manchin. So Joe Manchin played a role even in Glasgow, even in wow. trying to craft uh, some uh, reasonable global standards. So America, which was sort of clearly there uh, on the minimum tax thing uh, and said, look, we've stood up to JP Morgan Chase and Apple and you know all of the all of these global uh, corporations, which are headquartered in the U.S., uh, we haven't really stood up that much to Exxon and uh, uh, Chevron, and um, you know you, we're not really giving you cover. And so it was a much more muted response in Glasgow, as well as you know it's actually harder for nations that are reliant on the production of fossil fuels, one way or another. There are a lot of them. Uh, to make this transition in terms of lost jobs and that, that sort of thing. So it was a harder ask in Glasgow. We approached Glasgow with sort of less credibility, and the result was kind of middling. Some standards were raised. Uh, there would be somewhat more money uh, in aid for transition going from the wealthy countries to the poorer countries. The question of nuclear power was entirely punted off. The question of even stronger standards was, was punted to the next meeting. There was some talk about, well, let's look at this next year. Um, so uh, some of this was just simply the proverbial can kick down the line. Yeah. Well, I'd like to switch our focus from Glasgow to Texas. Texas has a election for governor uh, coming up, and it's one of the key states where, you know, there, there are many states where Republicans control both houses of the legislature and Democrats would like to either hold on to or gain control of the governorship to prevent them from changing the election laws and everything else. The big news from Texas this week is that Beto O'Rourke finally announced he will run for governor against the fiendish Greg Abbott. The New York Times called it a long shot candidacy, but Greg Abbott poll show is not very popular in Texas and Beto is. Beto uh, almost beat uh, Ted Cruz for for the obscenity lost by 220,000 votes in a state with 17 million voters. And Greg Abbott's approval rating right now is underwater uh, for the first time since they started polling his support in, in 2018. And this is after he's taken all these very extreme right wing uh, positions on, on abortion on on vaccine mandates uh and uh he also announced i was interested to see that texas will build its own border wall trump has endorsed greg abbott but not very enthusiastically he's keep he, he was insisting for a long time that greg abbott had to uh introduce one of these election audit bills in texas and get it passed and texas the texas republican legislature did not 
pass uh, uh, the election audit bill that that Trump uh, wanted. So Greg Abbott is going to be challenged in the primary by people even farther to the right. And uh, the last poll showed only 43% of independents support Abbott's reelection. I do have to point out, on the other hand, no Democrat has held the governorship of Texas since Ann Richards failed to win a second term in a race against George W. Bush in 1994 when both of us were teenagers. Right, right. I was still teething. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, yeah, uh, Republicans can gerrymander their way into uh, controlling the legislature where they have the power to do that. Uh, but Democrats, uh, even with that, have been shown to be able to win statewide in a range of swing states uh, like Wisconsin and Pennsylvania uh, and Michigan, uh, with all three of which have Republican legislatures and Democratic governors. And not coincidentally, those are also three states that Joe Biden carried in 2020, despite the composition of the legislature. So, you know, the best we can hope for uh, from Texas is a similar outcome, that the Republicans will continue to crawl, control the legislature, but that uh, Beto O'Rourke uh, can become governor and veto uh, some of the nonsense coming out of the legislature. Let's hope that the Democrats have at least one third of, uh, of, of one of the houses so they can uh, uh, resist uh, the legislature overturning uh, a, a veto. But, uh, you know, that, that's sort of the best we can hope for. And it also, I mean, it also highlights the idiocy of gerrymandering in which by sort of choosing, uh, you know, who, who votes where, the Republicans can negate the actual political sentiments of the state's uh, citizenry and voters, uh, which is registered in statewide elections. And now we have a uh, local report on class struggle. Big news from the University of California on Wednesday. University of California, one of the many institutions that lives by exploiting lecturers. Uh, tenured faculty, like me, uh, don't do a lot of teaching. Most of the Almost half of the teaching at the University of California is done by part-timers, 6,500 lecturers uh, who get paid terribly, have no job security. They were set to begin a massive two-day system-wide strike on 10 campuses on Wednesday, but that morning there was a dramatic announcement from the union, they're represented by the AFT, UCAFT, that they had reached a tentative agreement on a contract after 14 months that would strengthen job security significantly and boost pay 30% over five years. Other great stuff in it, a $1,500 bonus for every member upon ratification, 9% raises for the lowest paid members after 60 days. Uh, I never thought the University of California would do anything like this. I, I wonder your, uh, what you think. Well, this is part of a general uh, and long overdue worker uprising, uh, and lecturers are workers just like uh, the rest of us. Uh, you know, uh, we, we've seen strikes narrowly averted just in the last week at the Kaiser Permanente across California. At least 30,000 healthcare workers were slated to go out. At the last minute, Kaiser caved. We've seen this in a lot of places. One of the, not so much among lecturers who are constitute sort of in and of themselves, the bottom tier of pay for, for teaching in the University of California system. 
A lot of what we've seen is worker resistance to two-tier contracts in which newer hires don't get the pay and benefits of uh, people who've been around for a longer time. And that was certainly the case at Kaiser Permanente. The nurses and others said, we don't want uh, future nurses to, to get less than we're getting. Um, and they, they won on that, just as workers uh, have won on that in, in some of the baking uh, industries at Nabisco, at, uh, uh, at, at Frito-Lay. Uh, and, uh, you know, at, at a time when the cost of living is rising and at a time when corporate profits are at an all-time high, workers are noting that things like the two-tier contracts, which in many cases were instituted during the financial collapse of 2008, uh, really, not that they made sense then, but they sure the heck don't make sense now, and they're revolting against that. The lecturers, God bless them, were at the bottom tier anyway, and they, they managed to prevail. So God bless them, too. And and just a word on the Kaiser Permanente uh, uh, near, near strike and, and victory. It was, I mean, they had tremendous public support after a year and a half of COVID, where we honored the frontline workers who, you know, were there overtime, getting sick themselves, endangering their families. The fact that Kaiser would try to screw them on the new contract was just too outrageous. Yeah. And uh, they rightly made a big point of that. You can't treat us this way, especially after the last two years. Right, right. And th- this is like after World War I and World War II, and there were huge strike waves. If we're heroes, they're, they're saying, <laughs> yeah. if you acclaimed us as heroes uh, for fighting your wars or for being on the front line of a deadly pandemic, you know, at least treat us decently, okay? And and that's a common thread running uh, from the uh, end of the two world wars to the end of the pandemic or the near end, let's hope, of the pandemic. One final thing. There's news today about the children. Children and young people are nearly 50% more likely than older people to believe the world is becoming a better place. According to a new opinion poll by UNICEF and Gallup, Uh, released for World Children's Day, that's November 20th. The opinion poll done in uh, uh, 21 countries of 21,000 people uh, found that young people are far from naive, I'm reading from the press release now, expressing restlessness for action on climate change, skepticism about information they consume on social media, struggling with feelings of depression and anxiety, far more likely than older people to see themselves as global citizens and more likely to embrace international cooperation to tackle threats like the COVID pandemic. The poll also finds young people want faster progress in the fight against discrimination. Your closing comments, Harold. Well, maybe if we had limited participation in the Glasgow uh, conference on measures to arrest uh, the climate crisis to people under 25 or under 20 or under 18, we would have gotten a hell of a lot better results. So let's just hope Uh, They keep coming, and uh, a little generational transformation uh, at the top would be a much welcome thing. Thank you, Harold, and happy World Children's Day. Oh, it's the same to you. Same to you. It's the 
same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the hour, your Minnesota moment, news from my hometown of St. Paul that you won't get from Sean Hannity. Traffic stops for expired tags and broken taillights will no longer be prosecuted in Ramsey County, Minnesota, the county attorney has announced. It's part of an initiative to honor Philando Castile, who was killed by a cop during a traffic stop in 2016. That story later in the hour. But first, it's time to talk about politics and pleasure, about joy as an act of resistance to fascism. For that, we turn to Rebecca Solnit. She's written more than 20 books, including Recollections of My Non-Existence. We talked about it here. She's probably best known as the author of Men Explain Things to Me. She's a regular contributor to The Guardian. She's also written for The New Yorker, The LRB, Harper's, and The Nation. She writes about feminism, climate change, activism, and hope. And now she's got a new book out. It's called Orwell's Roses. It's terrific. We reached her today at home in San Francisco. Hi, Rebecca. Hello, John. Well, in high school, I learned that George Orwell warned against the dangers of totalitarianism in the novels Animal Farm in 1984. And then later, lots of us discovered Homage to Catalonia, his thrilling memoir about fighting fascism in the Spanish Civil War and then fighting Stalinism as a leftist. But your new book about him begins, in the spring of 1936, a writer planted roses. You went to England more than 70 years later to see if you could find any trace of those rose bushes. Please explain why you wanted to do that. I actually was looking for fruit trees. My dear friend, the filmmaker Sam Green, thought he might do something about trees. Maybe we might do something together. He was very interested in trees planted by distinguished people, and I mentioned that Orwell had planted fruit trees, which I knew from his wonderful essay, A Good Word for the Vicar of Bray, and where he talks about how the planting of a tree, particularly a long-lived hardwood tree, will probably outlive anything else you do, good or evil, and talks about planting apples and other fruit trees and roses, and going back 10 years later after he no longer lived there and seeing them all flourishing and reflecting on that. So I actually went to where he had planted those things, thinking I was on an errand for my friend. The lovely people who lived there invited me in, delivered the bad news that the fruit trees had been cut down in the 90s to expand the garden shed. And then after I'd hung out a while, because they were very hospitable, they said, oh, but you know, his roses are still growing. Would you like to see them? And oh my God, would I? And I realized, so I'd known the essay, A Good Word for the Vicar of Bray for probably 35 years at that point. I read it in my very early 20s, but never thought hard enough about what does it mean that our great prophet of totalitarianism, our great anti-fascist, you know, this man who devoted himself so brilliantly to fighting authoritarianism, but also corruption and lies on the left and propaganda that he also had planted roses. And it felt like there was some wonderful set of questions about pleasure and joy and beauty and the natural world as they relate to a committed life, one particular committed life. But for any of us who are trying to live one, Orwell 
kind of flushed out of the undergrowth some really interesting things to think about. And so I was off and running. Well, I think about roses, or I thought about roses, as a consumer product, something we're supposed to give to our Valentine on Valentine's Day, sold in every supermarket every day of the year, a dozen roses for $12. I thought of them as part of traditional femininity, pink and pretty and delicate and domestic. But then you mentioned in this book that you found wild roses growing high in the Himalayas at 12,000 feet when you went hiking there. You were part of a team delivering basic health care. That was one of my all-time favorite pieces of yours. And here you call the roses of Dolpo heroic and supremely tough. That made me think about roses in a different way. Yeah, roses grow in a whole lot of places on most of the continents. They are very tough plants. And so in Dolpo, which is the Tibetan plateau on the Nepal side of the border, where I went on a couple of medical missions in 2015 and 17, you would get up really high, well above 10,000 feet, some of the highest communities in the world, very stark, overgrazed, etc. And the last green thing you would see were these huge rose bushes, the size of a you know, a Volkswagen perhaps, or <laughs> or thereabouts often. And I was there in the fall, so there were no flowers there, but they were covered in beautiful crimson rose hips. And they were sort of so cheerful and alive and so tough to be growing where nothing else could grow. They were just remarkable. I've seen roses in the subarctic growing wild. I've seen them growing wild in the California uh, countryside and mountains and the English countryside. And they are really tough plants. And part of why there's this huge, horrific rose industry, a kind of rose factory business or rose macchiadoras outside Bogota in Colombia is because roses are tough, durable flowers. You can cut them and pack them outside Bogota, rush them to a 747. And because I visited one of those rose plantation come factories, I know that a 747 can carry 1.6 million roses. They land in Miami, the refrigerated flowers are rushed into refrigerated trucks and driven to all your Trader Joe's and florists and supermarkets, et cetera. And they're just it's so alienated. I know uh, sweatshop labor producing industrialized flowers carried on 747s. When you give your love a rose, you, you want it to be about love and gardens and all these things we want to associate with roses. And so going to Columbia to look at them as part of this process of thinking about Orwell and roses was also a way of asking a really big question. What do we do about things that might be aesthetically pleasurable and ethically hideous? And what were Orwell's aesthetics and how did they relate to his ethics? And essentially, in his case, they were very often the same thing. And so, you know, this book literally took me many, many places, um, including Columbia, back to or back to Orwell's garden, you know, into the histories of Stalinism and agronomy and uh, Soviet famines, the origin of the phrase bread and roses and the Spanish Civil War and so much more. We have many things to talk about. You say that when Orwell planted those roses in 1936, it was, you call it, a bet on the future. I guess that's a bet that fascism would be defeated, that he'd be around afterwards to 
smell the roses. But for you, this bet on the future meant meant more than that. Standard image most of us have of Orwell is as this terribly austere, grim, pessimistic guy. 1984 is seen as a very gloomy, pessimistic, doomy book, a book of defeat. And, um, you know, Orwell kept planting gardens. And to plant something is itself a profound gesture of hope. You assume that there is some kind of future. You know, if you plant you know, annuals, you're just thinking in the spring that maybe there's going to be a fall and you're going to live to see it. But if you (laughs) plant fruit trees, rose bushes, these kind of long-lived things, you're really betting on some deeper time. And what's striking is not only did he plant this first ambitious garden of his in 1936, when he began leading the life he wanted in the country, about to get married, trying to make his living from writing, but so barely doing it, he really needed all the vegetables and potatoes and yeah. eggs from his chickens who were laying up to 100 eggs a week, which he was also selling to supplement his literary income, milk from his goats, etc. But then 10 years later, when he's actually pretty financially successful, thanks to the success of Animal Farm, how does he begin writing 1984? He fulfills his longtime dream of moving to an island in the Hebrides, the Isle of Jura, uh, to an old farmhouse, and starts a much more ambitious garden-come-farm, which will ultimately have 16 acres under cultivation for hay, plus gardens, plus geese, plus a couple of cows, I believe a horse, a tractor. So he's really into this stuff, and he's actually dying of tuberculosis pretty significantly by the time he's starting this garden in Jura. And the hopefulness of it, that he's really investing in the future and, you know, moving there because it's a good place to raise his little boy. And then ultimately he's going to die at the beginning of 1950, but die with a fishing rod in his room because he was hoping not to die of that fatal hemorrhage of the lungs from tuberculosis. He was hoping to go recuperate in a sanatorium in Switzerland and maybe get some fishing in. So he's actually fairly hopeful. And the epigraph for this book is from LA's own wonderful Octavia Butler, or should I say Pasadena's, the very act of trying to look ahead to discern possibilities and offer warnings is in itself an act of hope. We've been talking about the roses of the future, but we have friends who say it's wrong for privileged people like us to enjoy the roses of the present when other people can't, while other people suffer and are denied the basics of a human existence. I know you don't agree with that argument, and Orwell didn't either. Yeah, there's the left is so full of puritanical austerities, and Orwell rejected them to enjoy himself, usually in very modest ways. And he wrote a number of wonderful essays in praise of pleasures. He wrote an argument when people said books were luxuries that the working class couldn't afford, comparing the cost of tobacco for a heavy smoker like himself with the cost of books and coming down that, yeah, you could actually have books. Everyone everyone who could afford cigarettes could afford books. He wrote about the, you know, the pleasures of English food, of flowers, of gardens, of beer, of a good cup of tea, of nursery rhymes, of good, bad books, um, (laughs) domesticity and things like that. There's a deep sense on the part of the left that somehow, first of all, nobody should ever anything nice until after the revolution. And I'm old enough to remember when people actually thought there would be an after the revolution 
we now know there will be no such thing. And so if you have to wait till after the revolution, it's just permanently, you know, put off. But also people who are in concentration camps, refugee camps, people who are facing genocide and torture and starvation are not sitting around thinking, I hope some middle-class people in America are being very grim and grumpy on their sofas. <laughs> you know, what they're hoping is that we actually do something for them. They want solidarity. They want attention to their causes. They want defense of their rights. They want they want to live. And then ultimately, they probably want joy and pleasure and beauty in their lives too. And you do other things with roses in this book, and not just with roses. You write about a 106-acre forest in Utah of quaking aspen trees, which you say share a common root system and makes this a single organism larger than any other on Earth and about 80,000 years old. This is just astounding and, and wonderful. And it does suggest something about survival of the fittest and that evolution is not just a competition among individuals for domination and supremacy. There's also cooperation and mutuality and, and sharing a common root system. One of the really exciting things happening in our time is that all the capitalist frameworks for understanding human evolution, society, economic success, but also the natural world are crumbling because they were never very accurate or true. And we're finding as we look harder at what makes societies and economies work, at human nature itself, um, from everything from neurobiology to studying, uh, you know, toddlers' responses uh, to, you know, all this other stuff is that essentially it's all mutual aid, cooperation, interdependence. Um, that we survive by our connections to each other, not our competitions with each other. You can see it in a lot of subtle ways in how people are rethinking our social systems and et cetera, all the wonderful ways young people are just not so thrilled with capitalism as some of us older people <laughs> haven't been, et cetera. But yeah, this is also very much a book in which plants have a big role. We live in a world made by plants, which sequestered so much of the carbon in the atmosphere to create our modern atmosphere, the lovely world we evolved on. What it means to extract and burn fossil fuels is you're taking that carbon that plants buried hundreds of millions of years ago and throwing it back into the sky where it heats everything up and makes it all chaotic. We're basically at war with plants and it's a really bad idea. Orwell went straight from the coal mines that fueled England's great power, its industrial revolution, to planting his own garden. And of course, he wasn't thinking about climate change because it was 1936. But you can see in that planting the garden, his trying to be on the side of plants and having some intuition that plants are actually very political and powerful beings, as well as something he loved a lot. There's this very funny moment where a woman reader at the Socialist Magazine Tribune writes in to chastise him that flowers are bourgeois. <laughs> it's exactly that kind of prim, uptight, leftist stuff that Orwell and I don't love. But also, it's like, do you, are you think? Do you think flowers are merely decorative? Almost everything we eat is either flowering plants or animals that fed on flowering plants, unless you're eating seaweed, mushrooms, or fish. 
Plants made this world, they made the atmosphere, they're still sequestering about two-fifths of the carbon we're pumping into the atmosphere. Plants are really powerful forces. They're kind of fellow beings who matter a lot. And I was also trying to think about what does it mean to write about a politics that doesn't exclude the plant kingdom or the natural world? And looking at the plant controversies in Orwell's time, uh, the fact that Stalin was deeply anti-Darwinist, that part of the Soviet Union's uh, food crises were due to bad science, uh, a lot of it around wheat and bread and grain growing, as well as the war against the kulaks of Ukraine. So yeah, so this is a book about Orwell and about roses and about Orwell's roses. And also like to ask you about 1984, which I wrote a paper about my senior year of high school, you know, Big Brother and the Thought Police and the Ministry of Truth and Newspeak. You recently reread the book. What did you find in it now? I was fascinated to find a book that felt so different than what I remembered. First of all, Winston is a rebel against Big Brother and the totalitarian regime he finds himself under, but he doesn't successfully topple the regime. He only briefly tries to join an insurrection that turns out to be a trap. So he doesn't do anything really practical. What he does is he becomes the person that the party doesn't want you to be. He attempts to preserve memory, to determine what really happened in history. He seeks out sensual pleasure from a love affair to just the everyday pleasure of writing your thoughts with an ink pen on a beautiful uh, on beautiful paper in an old book he's bought in an antique store in a district he shouldn't have been in in the first place, a proletarian district. He doesn't think the thoughts he's supposed to think. In a way, 1984 isn't about what is totalitarianism. It's about what is totalitarianism trying to destroy. And in a sense, how do we resist it? We resist it. Orwell and Winston Smith seem to say, by being the people totalitarianism doesn't want us to be. Orwell says in that book, the final order of the party was to not believe the evidence of your eyes and ears or to ignore the evidence of your eyes and ears. Therefore, firsthand empirical experience in the life of your of the senses helps build the independent, grounded person who can think, think and judge for themselves. That's not who they want you to be. And you could apply this to Trumpism because the Trump people have turned out to be 40 million people who will believe whatever you want them to believe about abortion, pandemics, climate, elections, you name it. And um, Hannah Arendt says something very similar, that the ideal subject of totalitarianism is he for whom the difference between truth and falsity no longer matters. So making that difference really matter, um, you know, paying attention to that difference being careful with those things, as Timothy Snyder in the present would remind us, is a really important act in our time where we face similar things. And so you can see Winston Smith engaging in these acts of trying to form himself, and ultimately he's defeated. Big Brother bursts in, the thought police burst into the room in which he's having his love affair with Julia and carry him away and torture him and brainwash him and turn him into a broken husk of a human being. But what was also striking on this last reading 
was that Winston regularly says, if there's hope, it lies in the proles. I think a lot of people misread the book by saying, well, Winston is defeated, therefore there's no hope. But Winston himself three times sees this stout middle-aged woman singing in a beautiful voice a sentimental song while hanging out diapers. I think that she's the proles where hope lies. And there's two things that are truly striking about her. First is that Orwell, who's not always been that good with women, although there's a lot of strong women in his books, sees her, describes her almost as a goddess. She might have been hanging out those diapers for a thousand years. She seems to be inexhaustibly powerful with the song. She's thinking about love and the past, you know, having these emotions and thoughts you're not supposed to have with the diaper. She's committing to the future, like planting a tree. So she seems like this great beacon of hope. And then just before the thought police break in, this thing that was absolutely stunning for me reading this book one more time happens. He looks at her, sees that she, this stout, coarsened, reddened, middle-aged woman is beautiful. And he thinks to himself, why should the rose be less beautiful than the rose? And so this is a rose metaphor at the very heart of 1984. Winston somehow has flowers in his head on more than that Orwell does. And it reminds me of one of my dearly hold, held tenets that we need the natural, not only for physical survival, not only for the spiritual sustenance, but it furnishes our imaginations. We think in metaphors. Most of our metaphors are drawn from the embodied spatial natural world of plants and animals and plowing and reaping and all those things. And so somehow in Knowing Roses, Winston, but really Orwell, has found a way to understand beauty and the power of this woman. And that's the very centermost essence at the heart of 1984. And it was a shock to find, a wonderful shock, a kind of buried treasure in the book that I could read a different way because I had found a different Orwell and recognized he wasn't this grim, austere, pessimistic person at all. We have to talk about homage to Catalonia. Reading it for the first time in my 20s was a, a huge thing. And now I know from your book that it was for you too. What was it about homage to Catalonia that made it so important? For me, it was a really vivid firsthand description of being in moments when history was being made, what it looks like from the bottom up, from the trenches. What it meant for me when I was young, and it greatly influenced my second book, Savage Dreams, was you could be passionately committed to a cause while seeing it so close up, you saw its flaws and imperfections and ridiculousnesses, and that didn't deter you. Orwell saw how poorly trained most of the Spanish he was fighting with were, what a lost cause it was. And then in a much more serious way, he came to understand he wasn't fighting in a two-sided war, fascism versus anti-fascism. He was in a three-sided war. There were the fascists, the um, party of General Franco backed by Mussolini and Hitler. But the so-called loyalists were really two factions at war with each other. One of them was all these non-aligned leftists that Orwell was with, Trotskyists and general purpose socialists and trade unionists and anarchists and et cetera. And then there were the Soviet aligned communists 
Stalin didn't want a revolution in Spain. He wanted to repress it and he wanted to control what was happening. And so ultimately the party Orwell was with was hunted and demonized the party line of good communists writing in the communist worker newspaper in England, as well as some of the Spanish newspapers with that they were secretly traitors in league with the fascists, etc. Orwell had to escape Spain you know, under fear of death because of who he'd been fighting with. As an anti-fascist, the leader of his group, the POUM, was captured, tortured, and assassinated. And so, yeah, so the Spanish Civil War, I think, is about valor, about what it means to live in revolution, about disillusionment, about good reporting, about trying to understand the big picture while also being deeply grounded in firsthand experience. And it's such a powerful book, which got very little traction in its own time. It sold very few copies. It pissed a lot of people off because most people who are supposed to be the left were loyal to the Soviet Union. Um, Some of them because they didn't know what the Soviet Union and Stalin were doing. Some of them, to my shock in some ways, when I came much closer and deeper into it, writing this book, perfectly okay with Stalin sending hundreds of thousands of people to gulags, torturing, terrorizing, repressing the truth, betraying the revolution by becoming an absolute dictator in a reign of terror. And uh, that was so much part of the book, was looking at that and looking at how the left in Orwell's time was so often just fine with human rights uh, with human rights violations and the ultimate hierarchy that is authoritarianism. There are echoes of it in our time with the creepy people who support, um, you know, Vladimir Putin, Assad in Syria, and who have supported a number of other dictators because they're anti-American or officially socialist. But I digress. <laughs> Orwellian is a very familiar term of, of political description, what, what exactly does it mean today? I think when people say it, they mean something that's sinister, creepy, and also hypocritical, deceptive, manipulative, etc. And to say, for a powerful person to say one thing when they know the truth is another is often called Orwellian. Surveillance systems from Google to the Chinese government are Orwellian. To me, the most Orwellian thing going right now is Donald Trump, who's been arguing ever since Election Day that Joe Biden did not win the 2020 election. And virtually every Republican officeholder and millions of Republican voters are saying the same thing. And there's one more thing that makes Orwell important, you've argued. One of the things Orwell teaches us is you need to know what you're against. And, you know, if you're going to be an activist, a political writer, an organizer, an anti-fascist, you need to know your enemy. But you need to know what you're for. And he was not only trying to fight for a world in which everybody would have bread and roses, but to enjoy him himself in the present, which I think partly was pacing himself, taking care of himself so he could be the great anti-fascist, the great political thinker he was, but also 
it was a spur to the imagination. It was a grounding in the tangible empirical world. So you wouldn't get lost in the swirls of information and disinformation. But it was also always staying in touch of, with what he was for, what he wanted for everyone. And in various, mostly modest ways, secured for himself and just the pleasures of everyday life and the natural world in the garden. Rebecca Solnit's wonderful new book is Orwell's Roses. Rebecca, thanks for everything you do, and thanks for talking with us today. What a pleasure, John. Thank you so much. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Now it's time for your Minnesota moment, news from my hometown of St. Paul that you won't get from Sean Hannity. Some good news, the prosecutor who filed manslaughter charges against the police officer who shot and killed the black motorist Philando Castile in a 2016 stop for a broken taillight, that prosecutor says he will no longer pursue cases involving minor traffic infractions. This is the county attorney for St. Paul, John Choi. He was the first Korean-American prosecutor in the United States. He told the Daily Beast that he has never stopped thinking about the innocuous reason for the stop that led to the police killing Philando Castile. Just to review that story, a suburban police officer, it wasn't the city of St. Paul, a suburban police officer named Geronimo Yanez stopped Philando Castile for a broken taillight, then shot him on July 6, 2016. Philando Castile's girlfriend, Diamond Reynolds, was sitting in the passenger seat with her four-year-old daughter in the back seat. She live-streamed the aftermath of that incident in some of the most harrowing footage of the last decade, probably second only to that Minneapolis cop murdering George Floyd on video. But in 2017, a jury acquitted Officer Yanez of manslaughter and other charges, sparking days of protests in St. Paul and Minneapolis and elsewhere. That same month, Philando Castile's mother, Valerie, reached a $3 million settlement with the suburban town and its police department where her son was killed. Philando Castile had been pulled over at least 40 times for minor traffic infractions. In St. Paul, where only 16% of the population is black, 43% of traffic stops in 2020 were of black motorists. Nationally, the figures are similar. Black drivers are 20% more likely to be stopped than white drivers, almost twice as likely to be searched, according to an NYU study published last year. Of course, police use small infractions like broken taillights as a pretext for searching cars for drugs or guns, hoping to make a felony arrest and advance their careers. The St. Paul prosecutor's new approach drew mostly supportive reactions from local law enforcement officials. Todd Axtell, who's the chief of police in St. Paul, issued new guidelines to St. Paul cops that same day. Minor violations, expired tags, broken taillight, illegally tinted windows, 
objects hanging from mirrors. These were illegal and important to note, the St. Paul chief noted, but they had little effect on public safety. And he said, quote, we should not use these violations as a primary reason for a traffic stop unless there's an articulable public safety concern, close quote. The department, he went on, believes that the changes made to the traffic enforcement policy support the racial equity and inclusion goals of the city. Close quote, the chief of police of St. Paul. This has been your Minnesota Moment, a special feature of this broadcast. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our sound editors are Will Broughton and Alan Minsky. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. USA.